0: Christ is born. He is born indeed. (laughs) Got to stay in the rhythm of the seasons. I'm a little troubled to find this on the podium. Not sure what that's about. Today is the Feast of Epiphany. Well, actually it was Friday, but this is Epiphany Sunday, the Sunday that we gather together to celebrate this, this moment, it's also known as the Feast of Lights or the Feast of the Three Kings, which begins on the 12th day of Christmas. Epiphany is one of the oldest of the Christian holidays. In fact, it's older even than Christmas. Christmas emerges out of the complexity of the Epiphany celebration. It's more than 1,700 years old. I'll think about that for a moment. For more than 1,700 years... Christians across the globe have gathered, just like you and I have gathered this morning, to do exactly what we're doing. To sing, to pray, to read scripture, to hear scripture explained, to break bread together, and to go out into the world to be the light of Christ. For more than 1,700 years, this day, or a day like this, has been set apart for this feast. It, it, it not only is an old holiday, it, it has a long, complex history, because the Feast of Epiphany celebrates God making himself known, and the church at different times have emphasized ha, has emphasized different events in the life of Jesus. So Epiphany at different points of time and place has been about Christ's birth, has been about the adoration of the Magi a few years after his birth, it's been about his baptism, it's been about his first miracle at Cana. It's been about his transfiguration. Because all of these moments, and, and his baptism with John, all of these moments are moments of epiphany, of manifestation, of God making himself known. And Eastern churches and Western churches have come to emphasize different texts. Mostly in the West, today is, is focused on the baptism of Jesus and the coming of the Magi. And in the East, the focus is, is primarily on on the coming of the Magi. But all of these are really of a piece. All of these events in Jesus' life are moments of epiphany, moments of manifestation. If you think of it like this, in birth, he shows one kind of revelation, and in death, another kind. And baptism holds both together. There's the the water in the womb of Mary, there's the water of death, and then there's the water of baptism, that is life and death both at once. So whatever moment we, we choose to focus on, whether it be his baptism, his birth, his first miracle, his transfiguration, all of these moments are moments of epiphany. I, I want to focus on the story of the Magi because I think for us this story is a kind of paradigm for or allegory of how God makes himself known to us and then takes us up into making him known to others. How, how we come to know God and then how we come to share in others knowing God. I want you to hear just a bit of what other Christians have said, though, about this day. I'll start with the words of Ephraim the Syrian, who is a 4th century Syriac poet and theologian. And he has a series of of poems on Epiphany. But in one of them, he says, he he connects the story of John the Baptist and, and the Magi. In the height and in the depth, the sun has two heralds. The star of light proclaims him from above, John preaches him from beneath. Two heralds, the earthly and the heavenly. Epiphany is this meeting of heaven and earth. Witnesses from above, witnesses from below. He goes on in the poem to talk about how the star is supernatural and John is natural. And that the supernatural witnesses to God and the natural which witnesses to God. That the star is non-human, it's cosmic, and John is a human being. And that all of creation, from the stars the stars, to human beings, witness to Christ. Basil of Caesarea, who is also known as Basil the Great, preached a sermon on Epiphany almost 1,700 years ago. And this is what he said at the conclusion of that sermon. This feast belongs to the whole universe. It gives heavenly gifts to the earth. It sends archangels to Zechariah and to Mary. It assembles a choir of angels to sing glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. Stars cross the sky. Wise men journey from pagan lands. The earth receives its savior in a cave. Let there be no one without a gift to offer. No one without gratitude as we celebrate the salvation of the world. The birthday of the human race. Epiphany is the birthday of the human race. Now it is no longer dust you are and to dust you shall return, which is a reference to the Genesis story. Because of sin, you will die. Dust you are, to dust you shall return. He says, now, that's no longer the, the tale that needs to be told. But you are joined to heaven, and into heaven you shall be taken up. It is no longer in sorrow you shall bring forth children. But blessed is she who has born Emmanuel, and blessed is the breast that has nursed him. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Leo the Great, who's about 50, 75 years after Basel, also preaches a sermon on Epiphany in which he says, Epiphany is not an event in the past. It is an event that happens every time anyone is called to the child Christ. Epiphany is not an event in the past. It's not something we simply recall. It's happening. It's happening, and it will go on happening. Until the end of all, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, 5,000 years from now, Christians will gather somewhere on a Sunday to celebrate this feast until someday the epiphany is realized and all the nations are gathered as we've been praying and singing this morning. So with all that in mind, I want to turn to the story of the Magi. And I want us to think together through this text about how God is making himself known to us and through us. How, how God does that. Now, It is a wonder that God makes himself known at all. It, it is a wonder because God isn't like anything else. There is God, and then there's everything else. Right? This, is, this is the basic Christian theological commitment. There is God, and then there's everything else. And everything else is not God. It depends upon God to be what it is. But because of that, God isn't one of the things in the world. I, I sometimes say to my students, God is not another person in my life. God is my life. And many of them run out of the room screaming, wondering what in the world I mean. But this is, this is what, I, what I'm trying to, to press on them. My relationship with God is not one of the things that I have. He's not the top of my priority list. I don't love God first, and then with whatever's left over, love my wife and my children and you and my work. No, God is first in everything, because he's basic to everything. He's not the first thing on the list. He is at the heart of everything on the list. I have to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I have to love my children as God has loved me. I have to love my enemies as God has loved me. Loving my enemies and my wife and my children and you and my work is loving God. Because God is not one of the things in my life. He is my life. Without Him, I don't exist at all. So my relationship to Him is something that encompasses everything. We, we, We sometimes, I think, Imagine that our relationship with God is something that happens sometimes and not all the time. Right? Remember the footprints poem? Right? That's heresy. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean to hurt anyone's feelings, but that's, that's just heresy. <laughs> because there's always only one set of footprints, and it's mine. But I'm only able to walk at all because he's enabling it. Yeah. He's always carrying me, and I'm always walking. It's always 100 percent God and 100 percent me. There aren't times in which God takes me over and I become a zombie. He doesn't demons possess. God fills. And when God fills, we are fully ourselves. Right? So God makes himself known, but he has to make himself known in ways that are true to who He is. So he doesn't, he doesn't show up as one of the things in your life. He shows up everywhere. And how is he going to do that so that the whole world comes to know him? And the story of Christmas and Epiphany is the story of God doing that by coming to us in weakness, in helplessness. I've been doing some work on the notion of slavery in the New Testament. Over and over, the apostles and those who write with the apostles identify themselves as slaves. We are slaves of Christ. What an offensive way to talk. I mean, slavery is the most inhuman institution. It's where human beings are treated as something other than what they are as the image of Christ. It is deeply, deeply wicked. It is an absolute violation of the integrity of what it means to be human, both for the slaveholder and those who are held in slavery. So what sense does it make... For Christians to talk about being slaves of Jesus. I mean, God can just set us free. Those who know the Son and live in the truth of the Son are free and free indeed, right? Paul says, you have been freed from slavery. Don't turn back to slavery any longer. What sense does it make to talk then about being slaves? And here's, I think, at least part of the story. Precisely because slavery is such a violation of what it means to be human. It's so unimaginably dark and low. God says, I claim that too. And if I'm going to show human beings what it means to really be human, I'm going to start at the deepest, darkest, lowest place and say, that's mine first. And then I'm going to work up from there, right? So on this Feast of Epiphany, the Feast of Kings, where Christ the King is born, in the time of Herod the King, and kings from the East come to celebrate him, we need to remember that he's already claimed everything, from slavery to kingdom. Amen. Everything that's possible for human beings. Every possible relationship he's claimed as his. And he's going to make himself known there. There. Right. From the depths of, in hell you are there to the highest heaven you are there. The one who has ascended is he who descended to the lowest parts that he might fill all things. Everything is his. Everything is his. I'm preaching better than you're shouting, as they say. <laughs> So now it's time, as my friend Nate Binion says, to shuck the corn. Let's look at Matthew <laughs> 2. That's, a, that's an old-school Pentecostal reference for what preachers do. They, they shuck the corn. Matthew, Matthew 2, verse 1. In the time of King Herod, this is such a startling statement. In the time of King Herod, Jesus was born. And you and I are, were in on the joke because Jesus is the true king the king of kings, as we say, the Lord of lords. And he is the one who's responsible for the rise and fall of many. Herod is only king because Jesus allows him to be king. And not only that, Herod only exists because Jesus creates him. Time only exists because Jesus creates it. All things are made in him and through him and for him. So when we read, in the time of King Herod, Jesus was born we realize that the one who creates time and creates Herod and makes kingship possible and providentially orders the world, he comes into that world as one baby absolutely at the mercy of that environment. In the time of King Herod, Jesus was born. God, the merciful one, puts himself at the mercy of the creation, he's having mercy on. Think about that. The the all-merciful one puts himself at our mercy. And that's the way he shows mercy to us. And after he's born, wise men come from the east. Now I know in the way we set up our Christmas plays, all of this happens like three minutes apart. You know, the... (laughs) Jesus is already born, like we never see the delivery in our Christmas plays. Have you noticed that? That's my challenge to you for next year. Put on a Christmas play in which we see the Christ child born. And then, like, a couple minutes later, there are the shepherds, right? Looking cute with their staffs and, you know, their homemade outfits. And then, like, 30 seconds after that, here come the Magi. But in the story, it's not like that, right? The, The Magi come a couple years, maybe three years, after the shepherds have been told of, of the Christ's birth. And they come because they're led by a star. And again, in the way we put on the Christmas play, you know, any fool could have seen the star. right? It's, it dominates the stage for us. But it wasn't that kind of miracle. It was a miracle. I mean, it's a star that suddenly rises into the sky no one had seen before. But it's astrologers who see it. Now, when we get to the end of their story, the star does settle over the stable, settle over the cave, settle over the place where the child was. But at the beginning, it's just a star in the sky. And if they hadn't been people who were looking at the stars, they would never have noticed it in the first place. Because when God's work starts in our life, he starts where we're already looking anyway. And it's very seldom, if ever, so dramatic that any fool could see it. Now, again, there's a a version of Christianity that you and I have known that that's what we want from God. I mean, we want God to make it so impossible for us to miss it that any fool could get it, right? God, if you want me to go to Africa to be a missionary, right? Have someone deliver a plane ticket tomorrow morning, right? That kind of thing. But that's that's not how God works. Almost always, it's where we're looking anyway. And something happens that creates a question in us. Right? What, what happens is these, these wise men from the east, and I'm going to say more about them in a moment and how scandalous it is that they see it, but they, they see something they'd never seen in the heavens before and they start wondering, what is that about? What is that about? And that question is a hook. And then the Holy Spirit starts reeling them in with it. Right? And that's how God works in all of our lives. We, we sense something and we wonder, what is that about? I've never noticed that before. I mean, I could give lots of examples. I'll give you one. One was the first time I was in the room with someone who was dying, who died gracefully. I'll never forget that moment as long as I live. And it was like something hooked my soul. And I, I want to live a kind of life that when I get there, I can die like that. But that was a Holy Spirit moment. The Holy Spirit was getting my attention to say, hey, pay attention to what's happening here. This is what it looks like to die faithfully. That's how God works, right? And that's how God will use us too for others. And one of the points I, I hope to impress deeply on you this morning is that making God known to others is also about creating questions in them. We are the star that show up in their life. And very, very seldom, if ever, Are you supposed to make it so obvious to them what God is doing? The question is crucial to their will being brought into alignment with God. You can't violate their humanity in order to bring them to Jesus. In the Middle Ages, there was this practice, Thomas Aquinas and others write against it, of Christians kidnapping Muslim children and baptizing them and then taking them back to their Muslim parents. (laughs) And Aquinas says, stop it. Like You can't do that. Right. Now, you, you can kind of see their instinct. I mean, they, they, they think that these non-Christians are, are going to be lost, and if they can baptize their children, then maybe that grace will start to work in their life. But that's superstition. And it's also a belief that you and I control people's destiny. And it's easy for us to point fingers at them, but whenever we are passing out tracts and stopping people, do you know Jesus as your Lord personal Savior? Or do you know where you would go if you died tonight? We're, we're, we think that their salvation depends on our performance. And wherever we start to think it's about us, we become violent. In one way or another, we become violent. And we might not kidnap anyone's kids, but we, are, we overstep our bounds. The key to witnessing to God is to know how to let God use you to create questions in people's hearts. So that they say, wait a minute, what, what's that about Why are they acting that way? They should be angry right now. Why are they not angry? They shouldn't forgive. Why are they forgiving? They shouldn't be that generous. Why are they being so generous? They they shouldn't invite those people into their home. Why are they doing that? That That's how we start to create questions. But notice, and be offended by the fact, that the people who see the star are astrologers and astronomers. They're pagans from probably Persia. What? That's not right. I mean, maybe they were watching TBN in Persia, and they'd already said <laughs> they'd already seen the Billy Graham Crusade and said the Sinner's Prayer. I don't know, but no, seriously, th- let it let it offend you that that God does this. I mean, the Old Testament forbids this kind of stargazing, calls it wicked. And now, that thing that the law forbids as wickedness, God is using to bring pagans to his child. Now, this ought to humble us, and we ought to slow our train a little bit. Because just because we've come to hear the gospel, and we've come to identify ourselves as Christians doesn't mean that we know everything that God is doing in the world. And there are a lot of things that, by the letter of the law, are forbidden that our God is able to use to his ends, and we need to respect those boundaries. doesn't mean we need to be gazing at the stars, but who knows how God is working in other people's lives. He's God, we're not. And he's using this to lead these pagan astronomers and astrologers and priests to his child. And so they come to Jerusalem asking. Now, this this is key. Because notice, the star is not so obvious that they know exactly where to go and they make it a, a bad assumption. If there's going to be a king, surely he'll be born in the place of power. And this is how God works in all of our lives. Where he starts is where we're already looking. But he also allows us to at first to hold our assumptions, which are always wrong. <laughs> like think about the disciples, the disciples. If they had known what Jesus was really doing, not a single one of them would have followed him. The only reason any of them ever agreed to follow him is that they thought they knew what he was doing. And that he was doing what they hoped he would do. And the truth is, when you and I came to Christ, we came to Christ for bad reasons. We did. Because we, at that point, aren't shaped into his character. How else would we come? We're coming hoping to get something out of this that our fleshly nature wants. And he's humble enough to let it happen. There's something in us, especially those of us who've been Christian for a long time, we want all motives to be pure, especially everyone else's motives to be pure, right? <laughs> we, we can get so high-minded that we fail to realize that God works in the midst of the mess of real humanity. And he's not ashamed of it. So these pagan astronomers come to Jerusalem because they think that's where the king must be born, and they ask, where is he? I love that. They ask. John Kibble, who was an Anglican poet, a part of the Oxford movement in the early 1800s, he said this about the wise men and their asking. It is not enough for the wise men, having seen Christ's star in the east, to believe and lift up their hearts. There was something more Something outward to be done. They had to come and worship him. They had to take a great deal of trouble to put themselves to inconvenience, to be absent from their homes and interrupt their ordinary employment for a considerable time. And to make it worse, they had to do something in the open sight of their neighbors, which was very much uncommon. Something which was sure to be noticed and pointed at. As strange, odd, unaccountable, for persons especially of their stature. Now, I love this. You, you hear what Kibble is saying? They saw the star, and they would, could have been tempted to say, that's interesting. Let's worship him from here. But there's something about the way that God leads us that requires us to search and to ask. Now, now hear, me, hear me carefully here. God's leading always takes up our following into itself it's not that our following is our part it's not 50% God and 50% us it's not as if God starts by leading then he sits back and waits to see what we're going to do are you going to respond or not it's that God leads in such a way that it starts to create our searching but without the searching there's no finding It's not that God is saying, listen, I'm going to test you. Will you search for me? And if you don't search for me, I won't let you find me. That's not it. It's that he will lead us, but the way he leads us creates our participation. And without that participation, there is no transformation. There is no salvation. There is no being brought up into the life of God. And this is part of why we do what we do on Sunday morning and Monday morning and Tuesday morning. The reason we don't just pray in our hearts, but we pray out loud is that we realize there's some stuff we've got to do. We don't just look at the bread and wine and think, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. We eat it. Because that's practice for the way God works. It takes our full humanity and leads us into the fullness of life. Christianity is not about what's happening in my heart only. It's about what's happening with my life. It's about what's happening with everything about me all the time. And on Sunday, that's what we practice. We kneel when we are praying the confession of sin. Not because we're superstitious, but because we realize sometimes it's not enough to feel conviction here. I've got to tell my body to come in line with what's true. We've got we to act on it. I'm hurrying. Then notice that Herod heard this and was frightened. Now, there's a lot to be said here, but I'm in a hurry and I'm, I'm just going to just give you this hint. I'm going to create this question in you. In this story, what if all of us are always both Herod and the Magi? That when God starts working on us, there's something in us that's like the Magi that responds faithfully. And there's something in us that's like Herod that gets scared to death. And notice, both of them search. Both Herod and the Magi are searching, but they're, they're not on the same search at all. Right? Herod is searching so he can put it down. Violently end what he thinks is a threat to his life. The Magi are searching so they can be brought under this king. They can give themselves up to this king of the Jews. But, but I want you to just think, what if every time God shows himself, however he does to you, there's Herod in you, and there's Magi in you. And the question is, who's going to find the child? Is, is your Herod going to find Jesus? Or are the Magi in you going to find Jesus? And then Herod sends them to Bethlehem. Now this, this to me is good news. Now we know Herod's motives are far from pure. Herod is a deeply wicked man. And we know historically from Josephus and other sources that Herod was deeply paranoid. He killed some of his wives and many of his children because he thought they were a threat to his kingdom. And wherever there is paranoia, you know that there is deep sin and wickedness. Like Whenever we're paranoid about losing something, that's because we've got the wrong kind of hold on it. But notice, the wise men, led by the Spirit, come to Herod, and Herod, with the the deepest possible ill motive, is still the way God uses to get them to the right place. Now this is good news. Because sometimes God uses God's enemies for our good. Think about the story of Eli, this corrupt priest who teaches Samuel how to hear the voice of God. This is why we don't need to be too afraid of corruption in the church. I mean, we should be sickened by it and angered by it and grieved by it. But we don't need to be too afraid of it because God can use Eli, a blind, wicked man, to teach us how to hear his voice rightly. This is good news because sometimes you are Eli. (laughs) And sometimes God's using you with your bad motives and your bad attitude still to teach other people about how to hear his voice. Or think about Moses when he is in sin, loses his temper and strikes the rock. Water still comes out. Because sometimes it isn't about the perfect performance of whoever the minister is. It's about the graciousness of God. And and we have to see past all that. We have to see past all that. I'm almost done. They they come and they offer their gifts. And again, I want to create a question in you. What does it really mean to offer gifts to God? what can we give him that he hasn't already given us? Everything. Paul asks the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. Everything we have, our very existence, our breath, our relationships, everything we have, we received. And yet there's something about this God who says, I want you to be like me. And at the heart of my life is the gift. And so the way I'm going to make you like me is I'm going to teach you by letting you give gifts to me. You give gifts to me, not because I need them. God doesn't need anything from us. But he invites our gift giving from this table and throughout our lives. Our singing, I mean, some of us can't sing at all, and yet God wants to hear it, (laughs) right? Because because God knows in in our learning to give gifts, we're, we're becoming human. And then lastly, this point, they go home by another way. They go home, but not the same way. I was talking with Bishop the other day. I I, I heard a lecture recently ended with this appeal to Gregory of Nyssa, who was an early church father, who was writing about the Garden of Eden and struggling with the story of the two trees. And then he says this. He says, actually, I don't think there were two trees. He says that the text says the trees were in the midst of the garden. He said, I think there was one tree, but everything depended on what desire you brought to it. If you came desiring the fruit... So it would make you wise, it was the knowledge of good and evil. If you came with the right desire, it was the, knowledge, it was the tree of life. What if home for us, the life we live, the relationships we have, the job we work, the skills that are in us, the desires that are in us, the dreams we have for, our, for ourselves and our children and our grandchildren, what if all of that isn't what God is wanting to change? He just wants you to come at it a different way. He doesn't want a different home for you. He just, he just wants you to get there some other way. Because what he's, all of this is he gave it to you. But he's got to train your desires so that you know how to come at what you already have in a way that brings life and not death. In a way that shows Christ and not Herod. In a way that reveals the goodness of God and not the darkness of our own hearts. So what that means, I think, is that we can be satisfied. I don't need anything I don't already have. I just need to come at it a different way. I'm not looking for something else from God. Some new relationship, some new job, some new insight, some new skill, some new word. I I don't need anything new except new perspective and new desire to receive what's already there. Let me pray for you. Bishop's going to come. Lord, help us to see the star, to be the star. Help us to respond to the questions you've put in our hearts and to become the kind of people who can create questions in those around us and lead us all to the child, to the weakness and helplessness and vulnerability that your presence has in this world. And let us come there and worship with joy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.